where I remember that I actually did not put any product in my hair. And my wife was like, oh, honey. Ben said it was, though he used the word pompadour in referencing my hair. And I feel like that's a strong, I felt like he was trying to compliment me is what I was thinking. That's what I'm going to try to think anyway. The uh, pompadour-esque look. And it's really, it's all about reaching the kids, right? You know, keeping your hair culturally relevant. You know, so that you can reach the kids. Um, that's what it's about, right? So, Hebrews. By the way, the uh, all clear sign has been uh, waved at the Tyler house. The stomach virus has passed. It might have something to do that I went and killed a lamb and put blood over our doorpost just in case. I'd, at this point, I'd kill the dog and put blood over it. You know, I mean, seriously, if that's what it would take to get this out of our house. I mean, at one point, one of our daughter's heads completely spun around on her shoulders. No, I'm just kidding. Ashley, the conscientious one. Is that a middle child thing, the conscientious thing? Well, she's like kind of middle because she's like second oldest of four, so the middle-esque. And we, we went to bed and we had the strategy, okay, which is, honey, here is a gigantic bowl, okay? And that's right next to your head. So I'm just saying, you know, because she went to bed, she didn't really feel right, you know, and by that time, at least three of us had, like, you know, done the thing. And, um, so, you know, she, she comes hauling downstairs. I mean, bowl in hand, okay? And the bowl, by the way, empty, clean. And I'm like, oh, you know, honey, and we're, like, hosing her down. And, and uh, she's like, uh, I said, was there any on the carpet? Because the night before it was Lauren, and, man, that was bad news for two nights before that. That was really bad news. Um, and uh, she's like, oh, Dad, I didn't. I waited till I was all done before I got out of bed, so that way you wouldn't have to clean up the floor. And she's very matter of fact and very just covered in goo. And and uh, and, uh, and the bowl, but, but but honey, look, I don't mean to be you know whatever. It's like midnight and stuff, but the bowl. I mean, it was right there. You know what? And she's like, I forgot about the bowl. So anyway. Well, all that to say, I mean, we were rebuking it. We were, I mean, whatever we could think of, you know what I mean? <laughs> so Hebrews is where we're starting. If, uh, if you're just joining us, we tend to try to study verse by verse. Because when you go through the whole word, the good news is, is you eventually got to come across everything, right? You, you know, uh, all those topics you don't want to touch, the ones that you really are excited about. Because, you know, it is like, maybe you don't know this, but when you... Um, when you teach the Bible or you're a speaker guy, you like to go to the go-to things, you know, and all the stuff that you have underlined is the fun stuff. But if every word is, in fact, inspired by the Lord, you know, you, you really should go through everything. And so that's kind of what Conduit has been about. It's kind of been a, you know, you can't really do that on Sunday mornings because, you know, not everybody's into that. And, you know, I mean, to be like bringing a steak dinner to the nursery at church, you know what I mean? It, it, the, the, the workers, some people would enjoy, but the babies don't, right? And so we try to go a little bit deeper here, and they cast the wider nets on the Sundays. And so Hebrews was something I really felt we should cover, because if you remember back in Second Corinthians, when we very first launched Conduit, and I was trying to explain what was on my heart about that as, as a believer, our job, our, our desire should be to serve 
serve the poor, the vulnerable, those that you know that are that need it, that, that don't have a defender, those types of things. And as I studied in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, we talked about it here, that when Paul was writing to the Corinthians about this offering that he was going to take up for the poor in Jerusalem, he didn't do like the slideshow, you know, the pictures, and, or describe in detail the, the starving people. Instead, what he did was build upon their love for the Lord. And he actually said, I want to test your love for the Lord. And, or I want you to show the proof of your love for the Lord. And then when you get to, I think it's First John, where it says, how can you who have, you know, who, who say you have the love of God in your heart, look at your brother and not, who's in need and not do something. And, and basically all that was really saying is that, man, when we, if I were to honestly, if I were to say, oh, everybody love the Lord, just raise your hand. You know, we do that in church or we do those youth conferences where it's the I love Jesus Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you thing? And then the other side goes. It's like the Christian wave. You know what I'm saying? Woo! Everybody loves God. Like, that's easy. Except that there's actually like a thermometer of our love for the Lord. And this isn't meant to be like an oppressive thing at all. Like, I'm, this is not, that's the beauty of the Lord. It's not oppressive or repressive. It's like your love for the Lord can grow. It can deepen. It can intensify. And it is shown forth. It's almost like you have a thermometer, right? Like the little... Remember the... I, I don't know who came up with the idea for the little turkey thermometer thing where the little red thing goes boing and it's, the, the turkey's done, you know? It's kind of like that. But your love, the turkey timer thing, is actually when it pours out in service to those around you, right? When you had those opportunities to serve the poor. So all that to say, if it's about loving the Lord, right... The question is, is how do we fall more in love with the Lord? Jesus said in John 15, we studied that a little bit this morning, but he made the statement, he said that the, because I, I taught you everything that I know, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. It's John 15, 17, I think, or somewhere in that range. Jesus is saying, to you, look, you guys are my friends, and you're my friends because you know everything about me. And so to me, what that says is that for me to really understand the Lord, to love the Lord, I should say, that I need to understand the Lord. And the cool thing about the Lord is that, like, the better you get to know me, like, the less impressed you are, right? It's just the way human nature is. The better, the more you know, you're like, well, the less I'm, you know. It's like, as you grow older, remember that line from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy says, oh, Aslan, you've grown. And he says, no, Lucy, you've grown. You know, because the more we grow in God, the bigger He looks to us. Now, He hasn't grown at all. We're just growing in Him. And it becomes more impressive and more blown away. And so, Hebrews, to me, is a perfect place to get to know the Lord. It's a perfect place to bring your, your uh, spiritual steak knife and spiritual A1 sauce. Because it's meaty. And it's full of Jesus. Hebrews is really simple. It's a book that, whose authorship is pretty much unknown. There's all kinds of schools of thought that those guys with their tweed jackets and their elbow pads and pipes can sit around and argue about. Truth is, nobody knows. The good news is that since the Bible is an autobiography, we already know who wrote it. It doesn't matter what instrument he chose to ghostwrite it through. We know it was the Lord. But this book was written specifically to the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people, to a people who were... Christians that become Christians out of the Hebrew faith. The very first people that Jesus had spoken to before they went into the Gentiles. 
You and I, by the way, are Gentiles for the most part. I think my Gentile friends represented here tonight. Um, Logan's not here, right? <laughs> okay. Um, they went to the Christian Jewish people who were being tempted to get back into their traditions again. They'd be walking down the street and they'd hear the trumpet blowing and they'd smell the the roasted uh, the smell of roasted meat, which they called sacrifice. We called barbecue. And it'd be tempting to get drawn back into it, you know? And this whole entire book is to say, it's a warning. Say, no, 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 don't go back into that. And the other thing that it is, it's basically saying, making the case for who Jesus is and why he is superior to everything that they had held dear before. Not throwing Moses out, not throwing the prophets out, but saying that Jesus is superior to that. And because he is don't go back to it. And for me, and for you, what that means is we get an opportunity to look at an absolute case argument for how rad, oh, how about that, how rad Jesus is. Can 37-year-old guys say rad? I don't think we can. 37-year-old people, young people, still say rad. <laughs> Who still say rad? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm just going to say, I hang out with rock bands. I, it's, apparently it's coming back. I heard today in a rehearsal, someone go, dude, that sounded rad. I mean, it was rad in 1985. Anyway, so, oh, so rad. That's how rad Jesus is, is what Hebrews says. And it starts out in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. And we talked about that, how God originally spoke specifically to Adam, and then from that he would speak through angels, right? The angels would just show up and make cameo appearances. And then the angel of the Lord in Genesis. And then from that he would have uh, prophets speaking, and they would do like just random stuff, like laying on their side for a long, long time. Making statements, marrying a harlot in one case, making these statements. God spoke through many different things. He spoke through creation. He spoke that when we look around, it says that we would know through creation that God is real. I mean, our dog, he has no idea there's a God. As far as he's concerned, I am the all-knowing, fearing God of his universe. But that's about all he's got. He's never bowed his head to pray for his food. He's never sat around and wondered about anything. He just hangs out and happy to be there. What separates us from the animals, besides our women's ability to accessorize, is that they, we know there's a God. It's in us. Now, we can explain it away. We can scientifically try to figure out how it's not there. We can sear our consciences, but we know it's there. God says that he put it inside of all of us, right? The point being that God spoke in all of these ways, but it says that then... In verse 2, in these last days, last days started in Acts chapter 2, by the way, and they continue on until Jesus returns. It says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. His Son. He basically said, okay, creation, your conscience inside of you, the angels, the prophets, all of those things I spoke to you through. And none of them got through. And so he spoke in finality, finishing with 
Jesus, His Son. And remember, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we said that He spoke in Son, the language of Son. You go to Mexico, you speak in Spanish, you, right? Son, He spoke in Sonish. That's the language of the Father, is Jesus, in Sonish. So He spoke, and it was finality. Everything God had to say was spoken through Jesus. Everything. And nothing left to say. It's all right there. And that is amazing. It's one of the things that makes me absolutely thrilled to get to know him more, to spend more time learning about him, because God chose him to speak to us. And he goes on right now, in these next few verses, he just lists these seven attributes, these seven things about Jesus that make him superior to the angels, to the prophets. Because again, if you're if you're a Jewish man, a Jewish woman, you think Moses is it. You know? You think that that's it. He's the, the dude, the, 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 the playing field's highest captain. Makes no sense. He's the, what is it? The high, <laughs> I'm going for sports analogies and I got nothing, Ben. He's it. But they're saying, no, no. The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, there's even someone greater than that. Greater than Moses, greater than the angels. It's Jesus. And he goes on to make the case. And these seven things are right in front of us. He says, uh, in verse 2 again, He spoke to us through His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Heir. Like, in our world, we think of heir is, we think of Paris Hilton, we think of rich kids, we think of, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a... Uh, Shannon and I have absolutely no danger whatsoever of, of inheriting anything, really. Um, we just don't. Now, I hang out with people who do, like, tr- you know, not necessarily trust fund babies like Paris or whatever, but you're thinking, dude, I appreciate how stressed you are, but man, your dad is like dumb rich, okay? Like, I can't even get into his neighborhood unless I got a weed eater and a pickup in my hand. You know, so I'm saying I got no chance of that, but Jesus is the heir of all things. In Hebrews, Ephesians 1.18, you don't have to turn there, you can write it down and go later. His inheritance, by the way, when you own stars and stuff, okay, God rolls deep. But the stars that He owns, what he, His inheritance, Hebrews 1.18 says, His inheritance are the saints, you and I. Now, if you need a self-esteem course, I don't see what he sees in me either. You're like, well, I don't either. And I don't see what he sees in you. Not that big to think that that's his prized possession is us. His inheritance is you and I. And if you remember, do you remember the story in Matthew 13, that parable where it talked about a man that was walking by a field and he saw a treasure in the field and, and he went and he bought the whole land so that he could get that treasure. And I've heard it taught before and maybe even thought before that that's an analogy of us and finding the gospel and and it's not it's talks later in the chapter that the world is the field god bought the whole world so that he could get the treasure in the field which is you which is me if you're feeling kind of down tonight and you want to pick me up the God of the universe, okay, who sneezes like asteroids. When he blows his nose, it's... <laughs> he wants you and I. He wants us. We're his inheritance. It says next that he was there, he created the universe. 
whom he appointed all things, to whom he made the universe. Talking about the Son. You're like, but Darren, I thought God made the universe. He did. So did Jesus. And so did the Holy Spirit. I heard it said this way, and this is at best a weak analogy, but it's all I got, right? Already spoke once today, so I'm, you know, if you're looking for deep, you might be, you might should have been there this morning. No, he. Um, I heard it said once that it's like think of God as the architect, okay, the designer whose mind has designed this thing. Jesus is the contractor who's kind of there and overseeing it because it does say in John one that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God. It talks about Him creating the universe, and then the Holy Spirit who moved upon the water was the con- was the actual. Uh, What's the dude that works for the contractor? Peon. No, he's the Holy Spirit's not a peon. The carpenter. Holy Spirit's a carpenter in this analogy. It's weak, but it's the best I can come up with. And when you get to those situations, you're like, well, how did God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit all three separately make the earth? Always go back to this, man. A God that is big enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. That's the number three thing. He radiates everything that God is. He's the radiator of God's glory. The exact representation of His being. Remember when Jesus says that if you've known me in that upper room when one of those disciples says, show us the Father. He says, man, if you've seen me, he, said, what, he made one of those, do I have to suffer this long with you people kind of comments. And then he says, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The idea being of this, that like in those days when they would make coins, they would press this machine and it would the impression of the, the face of Caesar or whomever was going to be on that coin would be left behind. So there was an exact replication on either side. Two different things, same image. That's the deal. Jesus, God, same image, two separate entities. So it's the uh, exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things. And if you were unlucky enough to have been here a couple weeks ago when I waxed philosophical about electrons, protons, and neutrons, you understand and heard that we're all built up of atoms so small that we can't even possibly comprehend it. Atoms that absolutely scientifically should not even exist because they should be repelling each other. They should be falling in upon each other. And scientists, the best they can come up with is this term called atomic glue that holds it all together. Because it shouldn't. The protons are electrically charged. It should just implode upon itself. But something mysterious, something that defies physics, something that defies the law of gravity, works. And I believe that it's God, it's His Word that holds it all together. And I think that when you look at First Peter and you say that at some point there's going to be something that's going to release a whole bunch of energy because it says that everything's going to be gone. And I think it's the moment when the guy that holds it all together says it's done, I'm done with it, and lets it all go. And what happens in those situations, of course, in our world, the best we can come up with is a nuclear blast. But in that day, it just burns and it melts and it's gone. And God creates a new heaven and a new earth better than the first one. So, he is that. He's the sustainer of all things. He holds my world together, your world together, through his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, again, your sins, my sins, they're forgiven because of what Christ did. I mean, that should be enough, right? If we want to fall in love with the Lord and understand that the wages of sin is what? Death. All right, I don't want that paycheck. But that's what I've earned through my wages. And Christ cashed the check for us. He paid for the purification. And he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. That's where Jesus is right now. 
Romans says that what he's doing, how he's up there, is he's sitting, he's not freaking out. Look, I don't know if you've been to the gas pump lately. It makes me want to freak out. I might have made a little bit of an error with my vehicle purchase. I scoff in the face of $105 barrel oil. It makes you want to freak out. You know, you watch CNN lately, and they're talking, oh, yeah, milk's going up. I mean, my kids drink milk like it's water, you know? Everything's going up in price and what's going to happen. And and it's you think it begins to freak you out, but you realize that where Christ is, is sitting down. He's relaxed. He's kicking back because it's done. His work is finished. He's not freaked out. He's got it under control. And he's sitting at the right hand of this of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. Gang, that is a key point for the cults. Those that say that Jesus is brothers of Michael. Those that would say, go so far as to say that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers. Okay? He's about to unpack this thing for the Jewish brothers and sisters and for our friends and our neighbors that might be knocking on our door with those fancy white shirts and ties and name tags. This is an excellent chapter for you. And look, you don't want to get, I don't do it. Don't get drawn into it. Don't sit and have endless debates. God called Jesus God in Psalms. He calls him God again here. We're going to see what else do you need at that point? He's either, that's either wrong or it's right. But he says his name was superior to the angels. He wasn't a brother of the angels. It says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And in speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants, flames of fire. In verse 8, but about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, this is quoting from Psalms, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Righteousness is the scepter, the power of his kingdom. That stands out to me because I live in a country where politics is the power of our kingdom. Who can get the latest zinger in? Who can get up and down in the polls, who can get the favors worked out, who can get... I mean, it's no wonder that you tend to, at your age or my age, just begin to think, you know, this is all crazy. It's all nuts. Because it's the way our system is working right now. Now, does that mean that... Hi, how do you do? It doesn't mean that our government is wrong. or that. What it means is this. There will never be this side of heaven... Hear me say this, ever a government that works perfectly, ever, okay? Whether you're a sawed-off whack job that runs North Korea, whether you're the king of, of Russia, the new guy that's stepping in today, every one of these political systems have problems. America is no different. doesn't mean that we're, you know, that we got to abolish democracy or whatever. What I'm getting at is this. Okay, let, me, let me hit this from another side. I feel like I'm not getting my point the way I wanted to. Democracy is not a religion. It's not our goal in life to spread the quote-unquote democracy. 
The problem when you spread democracy to a place like Palestine, for instance, is that when those people voted, what did they vote for? Hezbollah. All right? I'm just saying that when we hear this thing, that this end-all, be-all, is we've got to spread democracy, I just want you to encourage you to take a step back and say democracy is a good thing, okay? It's been amazing to this country. It's the best of bad governments out there because, again, there will never be a government that works until Jesus comes back, opens up a can of wood, God, shuts the place down, and resets his shop here, okay? That's when it works because our governments are ran from power. They're ran for political purposes. Only when a government is ran from righteousness, from being right, no matter who is in office, whether it's your guy, whether it's my guy, whether you happen to have a girl that's your girl, whoever it is that ends up in office, they're never going to be right all of the time. That's just the way it is. Our job isn't to throw stones at them. Our job isn't to get on the web and rant about them, blogs and tearing them down. The Bible gives us one recipe and one recipe only for that, and that is that we are to pray for them. And I want to encourage you even further to say, whoever wins in our election coming up, it's God's guy or girl or whoever. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And whoever God needs in that office at this moment in time is exactly who's going to get it. I have every bit of confidence in that. Over and over and over again throughout history, God has used governments to accomplish His purposes. Into the future where it even talks about, I'm going to put a hook in the jaw of Gog and drag you down into Megiddo. That's God controlling the government. And I don't know if you've looked at it lately, but man, what's happened in the Middle East right now is kind of confusing. And it doesn't seem like there's any right way out of there. But if you take this 30,000 foot view, maybe God is in control. And I don't know, maybe God needed to get... Okay, this is where Darren goes from... This is word to... This is just Darren pontificating, okay? Maybe God just needed to get Saddam Hussein out of the way... Because standing in between Israel and Iran was Iraq. And you guys aren't old enough to remember that in the 80s, man, Iraq and Iran, those guys beat the crap out of each other for like a decade and couldn't get anywhere. They were not friends with each other. Iraq was right in the middle, and there's no way Iran could have ever gotten over the borders to invade Israel with them in the way. They were never going to get through there. But now, Babylon, which exists right in the middle of Iraq... Who knows? Maybe maybe when we withdraw at some point, which we will at some point, maybe God needed to get that out of there so that he could bring Iran in to have control of Babylon so that for the first time in, that I've ever remembered that Persia would now be in control of Babylon again. Babylon, which is spoken of in Revelation as a real place. Babylon, which is destroyed years and years ago and now has been under Saddam's regime, was being rebuilt and bricks that were built with one side said Saddam and the other side it said Nebuchadnezzar on it. He wanted to be the resurgence of Nebuchadnezzar. And now the Persians spoken of very specifically in Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation. I don't know, I'm just saying. I'm just saying you don't have to freak out. 
you tend to watch the news and it makes you want to panic a little bit because you're young and you're thinking, man, I just want to get married and have kids and I want to live life and I don't know what in the world's going on. And I want you to know that you can have peace because God, this God, who is the God of peace, the God who is my son, the God that will be, I will be his father and he will be my son, the God that is the exact representation of his being, the sustaining of all things by his powerful word, the God that provided purification for our sins, the God that is sitting down in heaven right now is in control. He just is. It looks sketchy, okay? It doesn't look like there's any solution at all. And there's not. I want you to know that right now is our president. I'm just going to make a prediction. Our president and Condi over there right now. I know Philip likes, likes him for Condi. <laughs> Philip. <laughs> it's the boots. <laughs> Philip likes Condi. They're going to go over there and try to make peace again in Israel. And I want you to know, when you hear him talking about splitting Jerusalem in half, which is what they're talking about right now, that's all in the word, man. It's all there. I don't know if it'll happen on their watch. But just know that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And when Jesus comes back and when he sets up shop and when you and I literally see this, this isn't Santa Claus. It's not Easter Bunny stuff. It's real. That he is going to rule with righteousness. Righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. I love that about Jesus, that he's right. What is, what's going to happen with the pygmies? You know, what's going to happen with those in Africa that never heard the word? And how? I don't know. What I do know is that it talks in Revelation that there's going to be this, this cadre of people. Is that a right word? Cadre? Like a lot of people? Around the throne saying, righteous and true are your judgments, Lord. Basically, high five, Jesus. You got it right. You did it, man. You did it right. I don't know how that all stuff, all that stuff works out. And the good news, I don't have to know. All I know is that when I get there, I'm going to say, man, Jesus, right on. You were compassionate. You were perfect. You were right. You loved righteousness. You were right on. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And he also says in verse 10, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Anybody got those old clothes that are just sitting around waiting? I think my wife finally got rid of my 32-inch jeans because I kept holding on just in case. And I think she finally said, you know, honey, you just got to give it up. Even if they did come back you know, to 32 inches, those were from like 1993, okay? Those are not going to work. There's the Cavaricis. No, they're not. I don't think I have <laughs> Just like old garments. And it's not style so much as it is that they're soiled. He's going to roll them up and throw them out. I mean, there was a moment where a couple of articles of clothing this week at the Tyler house, I just had to declare, no, we're not washing them. Those will never be the same. <laughs> One of them I'm at at like 2 in the morning, like in, you know, shorts and in uh, flip-flops in like snow, the snowy night, like hosing down a bed sheet. Anyway, God says, I'm just going to roll all that stuff up and throw it away. The heavens and the earth, soiled. 
heavenous soil? If you've read the book of Job, but Satan has access to heaven. Read it once. It's fascinating. A war that took place in heaven. God says, I'm starting it all over again. It actually talks about no sun and no moon. That's coming to us. I mean, and there's a lot of scientists out there that would disagree that our sun won't burn forever. Right? God says, that's cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the guy. And it's almost like that picture of the tabernacle. And I don't know if you guys are fans of the tabernacle. But the tabernacle, when you would walk into this tent on the right, you would see the candles. And they would light up the whole place. But when you would go behind the veil, behind the Holy of Holies, it would be illuminated, but there was no light. No light source. It was the radiance of God's glory. And that is a picture of what we're going to experience. Somehow this thing where it will look different and be well lit. And it says that I'm going to roll them up like a robe. It says in verse 12, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same. Your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Or for our times, Ottoman, for your feet. Are not all ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? He is saying this. As cool as angels are, Jesus is way better. We're not to worship angels. We're not to look up to them. We're to understand that they're powerful beings, but they're not God. And I got a newsflash for me and for you. But neither is Satan. I don't know if you're under aware of this or not, but Satan is not all-knowing, right? I bet he doesn't even know my name. Right? He's busy, like over in the Middle East, trying to screw stuff up. Satan is not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. Satan is not as powerful as God. In fact, in Revelation, when it talks about that last war, it's, I mean, extermination is a better word. God just says it, done. And it's over. Because Satan is an angel. And I know that our little pictures and Dante's seven levels all stuff, it's, it's much more fun to think of him as creepy and crawly and like with, you know, open pussy sores and horns and, you know, disgusting. And But man, there's no record of that ever happening. He and Michael, man, they used to work together. Be like one of your workers, you know, turning against you. In fact, there's a moment where it talks about that you and I are going to look upon him and say, this is it. This is what caused all that. Some people say that it's because he's going to be so puny. And so I I sometimes wonder if it's because he's beautiful, because he's amazing looking. And because it's like that, I thought it'd be creepy and crawly. And it's not. It's like. Do you know what I'm saying? I say that to encourage you to say that Jesus is all powerful. He is not freaked out. You don't have to go to bed tonight worried about what Satan is going to do to you. You just don't. He's defeated. God has his plans and they are irrevocable. I mean, here's how dumb Satan was. He fell for the whole thing. It says that had he have known what was going to happen in Corinthians, he would have never even crucified the Lord of glory. What a moron. You don't think that they sat around in hell with like whiteboards and stuff trying to figure out and like they had all the stuff we have access to, four hundred and some odd prophecies alluding to Jesus and what was going to happen, and somehow they blew it. You got to imagine the butt chew and that guy got that. You blew that? You are you kidding me? 
You don't have to be freaked out by it, gang. What we can be is blown away by who Jesus is. That this Jesus that they talked about to the Hebrew people, that this writer was writing about, is a Jesus that is relevant to you and me. That whatever problems that seem so daunting to us, that he's bigger than. Period. He's holding it together. And when it doesn't seem like it, you can know that he is where he's sitting down. Romans goes so far as to say that he is advocate on our behalf. He's our lawyer. There's a reference where it seems to be that the only thing that Satan does when he gets to heaven, according to Revelation, is just talk about what kind of jerks you and I are. That these humans, this and that, and it's Jesus up there saying, no, 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 no. It's paid for. It's done. He's our lawyer. He's our advocate. That's what's going on right now on our behalf. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to be scared. Jesus is bigger than that. And man, if that doesn't make you love him a little bit more tonight, you know what I'm saying? Just let those words soak in. And as you leave here tonight, just meditate on it, knowing those things in your heart. You don't have to run around and recite and all those things that sometimes we get caught up in. I mean, think about it in these terms. If you were in the early church and you didn't even have access to a Bible, how could you have been running around, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, if it worked for them, it could work for us. And just meditate on it. Let it sit in your heart. Let it soak in that Jesus is amazing. And go back and review these things, these characteristics of who Jesus is. Maybe there's one that's specifically for you tonight that you needed to hear. He's holding your world together that feels like it's falling apart. Whatever it is. And let that love in your heart grow even more. It happens naturally. I know I've said it in the past, but man, I've been married to my wife for 13 years. And I love her more today than I did 13 years ago. And I didn't think it was possible. But I love her more because I know her more. And I found out that she's even more amazing than I thought she was. And every day I see something else that's even more amazing about her. It's like, ah, oh, I just love her. It took time. It took relationship. It took me abiding with her. And that is what we got to do with Jesus. Just abiding with him. Soaking it in, learning about him, knowing him, that we are not his servants, but we're his friends. Does this make sense? All right. Do you want to talk about Haiti tonight? This week we'll drop an email out to you guys about what's going on with our trip this summer to Haiti to give you more details on that if, you, if you're planning on going. Um, the bucket? We don't have a bucket. We, we'd love to get a bucket. We just gave away all the money. No, um... And by the way, that's the goal, by the way. We're not asking for you to take away money that you've been given to your church or anything like that. But if the Lord puts it on your heart, know that pretty much 95% of whatever comes in this bucket goes immediately into the kingdom of God. That's the picture of the conduit. It's what we do. We are a pipe that brings resources from here to the front lines. No pressure, no whatever. Just know that if it's on your heart, that's great. If not... That's great, but God is using it right now. He said, almost, well, let's just say $18,000 with confidence that have gone through these doors in the last five months that are feeding. I mean, kids woke up in Haiti this morning and had breakfast. People woke up in Rwanda this morning and had breakfast because of what's happening here. People are being pulled out of addictions and things through the power of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee because of what we did here. It's amazing. And if we did it not for pressure, we did it because we love the Lord. And that's what you do when you love the Lord. So that's it, guys. We'll be back next Sunday night with Hebrews chapter 2. And hopefully uh, we'll see you back then. Ben, could you cue the DC talk music? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, if you guys aren't careful, I'm going to have him bring Ray Bolts and then do watch the lamb night.
I'm roasting hot. I'm just curious, but like I said, I think this is the 